Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellenbecker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellenbecker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building. And we're also located in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building, right across the street from my favorite store, Winkies. We also serve clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit our website at ellenbecker.com for more details, as well as some educational opportunities that we're offering our clients and the community. Today, my guest is Eric Johnson, and we have a pleasure of talking about the elements of choice and how we make decisions and why we decide the way we do. Eric Johnson published a book called The Element of Choice. Eric offers a comprehensive systematic guide to creating effective choice architectures, the environments in which decisions are made. He is the lead researcher behind some of the most well-known and cited research on decision-making. This book is great for everybody, whether you're in the business world, you're making policies, or anybody who's tasked with helping others make decisions. And Eric, I help clients make decisions every day. I help my daughter and my husband make decisions every day. In fact, as I was prepping for this show, I learned that we make about 35,000 decisions every day. In fact, in the first hour, the number was astonishing. I think we make over uh, 1,000 decisions the very first hour that we're awake. So this is a great conversation to have. Before we get into the detail, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to share your background and how you got into this field and what got you interested in choice behavioral science. That's a a great question. Thanks for having me. The thing that actually started me off was realizing when I was in high school that I was uh, in an academic high school and some people were deciding they were going to go off to the local community college and other kids who were just as smart as the first set were you know, only applying to Ivy League schools. And I started wondering, why did different people think about their options so differently? And I was really lucky. I went in, off to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, and there was a guy there named Herb Simon, who was the first psychologist to win the Nobel Prize. And he was very interested in decision-making, how people made choices. And this fascinated me to think of choice as something you could actually study. You could do experiments. You could actually understand And along the way, I got interested in some really concrete areas. So it's one thing to study about choice or thinking about gambles or things like that. But I got very interested in consumer decision-making and consumer finance. And that led me to study how do people actually make many decisions, including those about money. I was lucky enough, actually, to spend four years at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in Washington, the bureau that Elizabeth Warren started after the recession in 2008. Uh, which gave me a real hands-on of how hard it is to actually help people make better choices. And I also teach at Columbia Business School, where I teach courses in consumer finance and choice architecture. So it's actually a quite nice place to be. Well, I have to share, I had a great opportunity to read the book over the weekend. And before we get into the financial aspects of decision-making and 
how we actually guide people to this great vacation called retirement. I thoroughly enjoyed your paragraph on the pilot, Sully, who landed the plane in the Hudson. And anybody who knows me knows I grin and bear it on planes and uh, never really enjoy it. So I was really intrigued on this. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners how he took all the decisions that were in front of him and kind of narrowed it down and how long, if I remember, he had like two or three minutes to make all these decisions. Do you want to give a little background on how you analyze that situation? Sure. The, the amazing thing is I'm sitting at my desk in New York, and if I look out the window, if I had been sitting here when the plane came down, as your listeners might remember, in the Hudson, I would have seen it fly right past my window. That's how real it was to me. Wow. I, was at, I was actually on a plane from three gates further away, uh, going out of LaGuardia as well. So the story actually attracted me quite a bit. The other thing that's attractive about the story is the notion that he was helped by the controls very much. And so I compare sort of what Sully does with what we do when we see a page, let's say at Amazon. So the people who designed those cockpit controls actually do lots of experiments with real pilots and see what helps them. There's a line I like a lot, which is, does the, does the cockpit give somebody the information they need in a way they can think about it and only when they need it? Otherwise, it's clutter. So the gauge that Sully saw is he had 288 seconds from when the plane hit the geese to when he landed. That's not a lot of time. And he had a choice between going to LaGuardia, going to a little uh, commuter airport named Teterboro, or doing something else. And to do that, he had to fly as far as possible without any engines, you know, not something he's had a lot of practice on doing. But to do that, he had to basically keep the plane at the right angle, up and down, at the right speed. And you could imagine there could be four gauges, you can try and do all that. But they had developed a gauge that actually had an, a little dot that already had calculated where the speed is that would let him fly as fast as possible. So instead of doing a lot of calculations, what he had to do was line up that dot with the arrow. And that let him think about other things. The phrase he's used, when I was reading the NTSB reports, is he load shed. And the analogy was to utilities. When they have a crisis, they sort of decide, well, we're going to turn off the power to the factory because that's less important than the hospital where people's lives are at stake. And so he said, I load shed. I quickly decided I was going to be able to lose the airplane, but I was going to save lives. And so he focused on some goals. And the reason I tell the story is we all have to make a decision about what goals are going to be important in our financial decision-making, all of our decisions. And what he said is basically that allowed him, instead of having to think about other things, to recall that he had actually been to that area of New York. It's where the intrepid um, aircraft carrier is. No wonder a pilot might visit that. Right. Uh, and what he did was simple. He said, you know, that's a place in New York where there are a lot of ferries, a lot of fire boats. If I land there, and remember that on that day, I think the water temperature was 40 degrees. The air temperature was 19 degrees. We could get rescued quickly. And so by having the extra time, because that gauge let him think, he actually thought about a new option, landing in the Hudson. And as we all know, you know, it turned well, the crew, only a couple minor injuries, and importantly, you know, he got the key to the city. I argue, though, the gauge should have gotten some of the credit. I agree. That's an amazing story. And I love that phrase, load shed, 
because I know I'm a thinker and I'm a type A personality. So when I read your book, I really related a lot to this, the concepts personally, because I think I get analysis by paralysis. And we all know what that means is we're thinking so much, we can't make a decision. So it's almost like I need to load shed and then make an effective decision. So um, thanks for sharing that story. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the financial world and decision-making. And you talk about a concept of shaping choices. So when we work with clients, they all complete an investment policy statement, which really gives me an idea of their level of risk and how much they're willing to take. And you talk about how different questionnaires can actually shape somebody's decision. Share with us what you meant by that. So many of our preferences aren't written stone. We sort of decide because we have a decision in front of us what's important. And that is actually an incredibly important thing for the person who's shaping the decision. By the way, I call those people who, like you, when you're working with a client, you're actually a choice architect, or I'll call you a designer, because you're making lots of decisions that are going to influence your client. And for example, you might be deciding how many, how many different investments plans to present them. You might decide to talk about things in a certain order. You might talk about returns in different ways in terms of percentages or in terms of dollar returns. There's lots of things that anyone who's helping someone make decisions does. For every decision, there's a designer. And that's something given that the 35,000 decisions that's a lot of work. That's somebody who's made decisions before you ever gotten to the to make a choice yourself. I think of them as your hidden partner in decision-making. So one of the decisions they might make, I'll give you a, one non-financial example because it's kind of cute. Uh, someone did studies long ago talking about hamburger and present the hamburger as either percentage fat, let's say 20%, or percentage lean, 80%. Now, it doesn't take a genius, even a math adult person say that's 100%. The hamburger is only fat and lean. And they found that people were much more willing to pay more and rated the hamburgers tasting better was described as lean than when it was described as 20% fat. Now, it's the same thing. But what happens is different things come to mind with those two labels. So with fat, we're thinking about arteries clogging, uh, about putting on a few extra pounds. When it's described as lean, we might be thinking about the protein content and how, how this is good for us. The same object looks different in memory when you use those two labels. So a hamburger is not a hamburger. It's some combination of fat and lean. And basically the decision is influenced by what the designer uses to characterize that. Well, and that also brings to light when I'm working with clients and I say, do you want a balanced portfolio? 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds. And how I position that and what do I talk about first? You know, if they're conservative, maybe I talk about the fixed income first. And at the end of the day, an informed decision is made, but I can relate to the, the hamburger analogy with um, when sharing a allocation in a portfolio, how much in stocks and how much in bonds. So interesting analogy. We're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. Again, my name is Jean Range. I'm a senior wealth advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. With that, let's take a break.
Welcome back. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Eric Johnson, and he is the author of the book called The Elements of Choice. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about this book, I'm going to direct you to the website, uh, www.elementsofchoice.com. So we're going to continue our conversation around a client base, and I'm going to focus on retirement and the plausible paths, meaning what do people do? You know, people retire from a job, but they never think about what they're retiring to. So oftentimes I have my clients go through this vision of what their retirement looks like and how are they going to fund it. Now, during our break, Eric and I were talking about that big decision on Social Security, when do you start it? And I know oftentimes I'm running through calculations and analysis, and I'm looking at so many factors, the health of the one person, the health of the second person and all. Share with us um, your studies on uh, that whole conversation around when do you start collecting your social security benefits? So an important thing about that reality is that many people don't think about it early enough. You know, in theory and in standard economics, you know, I should be thinking about how long I'm going to live probably from the age I start working because that decision is really important. It determines how much I should save at 25, 35, et cetera. The reality is people tend not to think about that decision. So we did a study that's a lot like the hamburger study I talked about earlier. And all we did was ask people, what year will you live to and gave them a choice or what year will you die by? Now, again, you should give the same answer. A year is a year. But we found that people, when we asked them how long we'd live to, thought they'd live a lot longer than we asked them what, when they should die by. The reason is, live to, they think about their Aunt Tilly, who lived 102. They think about the fact that they exercised last week. It might have been the first time in the month, but they exercised last, last week. And that medicine is doing amazing things. In the die by frame, they think about Uncle Fred, who died at 65, the fact they're 10 pounds overweight, and the fact they smoked in college. We literally ask them what they're thinking about, and they think about different things. And the difference in years that they think they will live is about 10. They will live 10 years longer in the live-to frame than when we ask them what year they'll die by. Now, the reason we did this is we're very interested in a decision people make about Social Security. As you know, Gene, people can start collecting from age 62 on, and they can keep delaying claiming until 70. Now, the interesting thing about that is your payments increase about 8% a year. And even in this market, 8% risk-free is pretty good. Now, if you have the ability, you might want to wait because 8% increase makes sense. But of course, it all depends upon how long you're going to live. The longer you're going to live, the more likely it is you should wait. Um, so that's really important. And what we find is that actually most people until recently seem to claim early on. Uh, about 40% of Americans claimed at 62. Um, and that is not for all of them the right decision. It illustrates something that's super important, which is we don't think about all factors. We think about some of the factors. It's what I call a plausible path. That is, just like Sully could look at lots of things, he looked at that gauge. Just like you're talking to your clients, they can think about lots of things, but they don't tend to think enough about retirement, not just the first day, but what day 10, 100, 1,000, 5,000 is like. Those decisions aren't about what happens 
the day you retire, they really should be, you really should be thinking about longer term, what your whole retirement path should look like. And funny you bring that up because when I bring up retirement with clients, they always say, oh, we're going to take this trip. I'm going to clean out the garage, the attic. And then I say, what are you doing six months after that? And that's where, you know, their path, they haven't figured out what their path looks like and their vision. So it's, it's a great conversation to have. When talking with clients and you brought up how people reflect on their life expectancy or what data they're pulling from their head to have this conversation, what we're finding is, you know, depending on if the day is sunny or if the day is cloudy and stormy, they may answer a risk tolerance question very differently. Or if they were just at the doctor and they didn't like some of their lab results, they might answer, you know, there's so many preferences and personal factors that come into play. How do you factor that in to decision making? Well, the first step is to recognize it's a reality. You know, there, there are, as you know, all these risk preference questionnaires. And as you point out, people's feelings about risk can differ as a function of the day and the weather. Um, there are some nice studies I talk about in the book that actually show that people pick different colleges on sunny days um, than on cloudy days. On sunny days, they go to schools we might think of as party schools. On cloudy days, they go to academically serious schools. Um, <laughs> and so that's good. If that affects college choice, it no doubt affects other things. And again, it's the notion that different things come to mind, what we call assembled preferences. Um, so you as a designer have to think about how you're presenting people these choices. So there's lots of things, decisions you're making, like you point out, the order in which you discuss the options. An important thing you're doing, by the way, is making them think about options that they wouldn't think about otherwise. In terms of plausible paths, they might not think of what they'll be doing 10 years after they retire. You're helping them think about that. So the choice architect or designer has a lot of power, and with that power comes great responsibility. Well, and when you think about it, even how you present different questions when working with clients, whether it be the color of the text, you know, we always joke our performance reports have the graph and the color red. Now in the financial world, red is not a color that you want in any reports. It just is the default color. So it's just kind of interesting that um, we're working with this color red and even the size of the print and the language, you can in a way manipulate the result that you'd like to achieve based on all these other factors. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about decision by default. And in the financial world, we're starting to see that happen where let's talk about retirement savings in the 401k plan or a 403b plan. In the past, employers provided employees um, forms to fill out to indicate what they wanted to contribute. Now in today's world, it's going to default to be the company match as the default contribution percentage, meaning if the company matches 3%, the employee defaults to contribute 3% of their salary to this retirement plan instead of the old um, method where the client had to, or the employee had to opt in. Talk to us on what made that shift in, in the world here. So again, the kinds of economics that has influenced retirement planning for many years suggested that what you do if you do nothing doesn't have an influence. So default, and we have to be clear because defaults in the financial world can mean two things. 
One is what happens when you don't pay your bills. But what I'm talking about is what you might think of as a no action default. What happens if you don't make a choice? And until 2006, companies were required to keep that at zero. You had to decide to start saving. Yet if you talk to people, they said, I really should save money. I, zero, is, I know, isn't the right number. Maybe I should save, but I don't know what the right number is. So there was a Department of Labor regulation that allowed companies to set defaults to be things other than zero. And it turns out that made a huge difference. It has increased the savings rate more than anything that has been done, I suspect, uh, since during that time period. You, know, you could advertise, you could talk about taxes, but just making it easy for people. In fact, if you do nothing, you save something in many companies. That's important. And in fact, 3% is probably, you're the expert, Gene, not me, but it's probably not quite enough for most people. They should be saving more. And in fact, one of the interesting challenges for a designer is what's the right number? It's going to differ for different people. But 3%, I think, is done because people are afraid they're pushing people too hard. In reality, people would be happy to be saving more, and companies should probably raise that default from 3% to something else, because you're not going to live well in retirement saving just 3% of your income. Right. You're not. In fact, um, what they've included in this default decision-making architecture is if you get a raise, it'll automatically increase your savings. And sometimes you have to opt out of that increase. So companies are really trying to empower and provide the tools for these employees to retire comfortably, which is great because pensions of the past are no longer here. So let's talk about pensions a little bit because in your book, you refer to when there's numerous options to choose from kind of get into that fog a little bit. So when I think of options for retirees, oftentimes it is pensions if they have an older pension plan, meaning survivor benefits, uh, this and that. Share with us how the number of options to choose from influence decision-making. So it's pretty simple. If you're seeing too many options, two things happen. One is you tend to disengage with decisions. Okay, you just postpone them. But what's more important is people tend to look at a simplified, easy to think about part of the choice. I'm going to go off financial decision for one example to talk about dating. There are websites where you see thousands of people as you know Tinder as fast as you can swipe. And what do you do when you do that? Do you sort of look and figure out people's personality? No, you look at the picture and decide if someone's attractive or not. And that leads to perhaps decisions that aren't the best because obviously if you're, you're looking for something more serious, other sites show you one person a day and that leads you to look at the information much more differently. Imagine I show you every fund that's available. You know, you're going to basically say, oh, what did well last year? You won't be looking at costs. You won't be looking at the things you should be looking at. You tend to screen and that leads you to choices that aren't great. At the same time, Having more than one or two options can be good because I don't know enough about what you want. So it may be that for you, there's a special kind of bond fund, or maybe you're, something else works for you. And so I have to really walk a tightrope of giving you enough options so you actually have some variety and not overwhelming you. Uh, the interesting thing is there's lots of ways of doing that, like making sure and this is done, of course, in most company menu plans, is there's a variety of types of funds. So there is an international fund, there are bond funds, there are you know, uh, 
socially responsible funds for people like that. You still give people the variety, but you don't give them dozens and upon dozens of, of funds. That balance is really a key decision for designers. Well, and we learn that early on when we're mothers, right? And you give your child two outfits to choose from to wear to school that day versus five. So I totally agree with limiting options and making informed decisions from that. With that, let's take a brief break and we will be right back to learn a little bit more about his book. I encourage you to hit his website at www.elementsofchoice.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. And today we're talking about decision making and how we are either influenced by a decision architect or we are going to be that architect helping somebody make decisions. And upon reading the book, I, you had a great conversation around putting things in order and how you order options. Meaning if I'm working with a client do I present the most conservative options first as far as a portfolio, the most aggressive? Am I weighing out all the personal information I know about this particular client? Meaning what is their history and their successes with investments? What's their age? What's their health? You know, you have to be astounded by all the factors that I'm weighing as I'm working with this client. And having been in the industry for numerous years, you kind of get a sense of different risk levels and appropriate portfolios. Share a little bit about how I am working with clients and presenting this data, how that influences their decision. So there are lots of tools that the designer has, but one of the most powerful ones and one of the ones that's least appreciated is the order in which you present options. That is something has to be first. It's not as if there's a random order. Um, in some cases, that can be who's first on an electoral ballot. It turns out the person first gets about a 2% increase in votes. It's also the case, though, in most choices that being first, particularly on a written piece of paper, if the list is not incredibly long, is going to benefit. They will get more choice than they would have if, say, they were the last. This is why some food companies actually pay to be in certain places on the shelf. And it's why on websites options that are first tend to get picked. Now, thinking about investments, if you're presenting things to someone, particularly on paper, you know, being first is going to mean those options, those investments will be chosen more often. So you have to think about what is the best option for this person and probably want to put it first. There is one small exception for that. And you can imagine if you're not doing it on paper or on a website, but you're reading lists to people. Now, again, memory rears its, its head and says, what happens when I start reading you a long list? Let me give you an analogy. You go into one of those fancy restaurants where they don't have a written menu and they have to read you the menu orally. And what happens is that, of course, you hear the first thing. Okay, you remember that. You hear the second thing. Okay, you remember that. But then you start forgetting everything in the middle. And at the end, the only thing you can remember is the last one. So it turns out that whether you're first or last, has a big effect on what you choose, um, particularly on paper, being first is useful, being on our website. But if you're presenting things orally, it's not a bad idea to think about being last. And you know, I, I, I talk about lots of examples, including ice skating contests and song contests, where you're better off being last. 
political. If you think of the political campaigns and the different debates, do you want to be first or last? Because sometimes what somebody says, the, the first speaker will influence the second speaker's conversation. And even as a listener, am I going to remember what the first person said, or am I just listening to the debate with the second individual? So it's funny that you bring up even the order. Um, I can remember in college when you had to present in front of the class, I either wanted to be first or in the middle. I never wanted to be last because first of all, you had to sit through the whole class being nervous, but you knew people were going to remember everything you said and um, grade and compare your presentation to everybody else's that already presented. So that is so true. I want to focus back on um, describing the options because this is so important what we do with our clients every day. And this gets back to your meat analogy of the 25% fat, 75% lean. And when I talk about a portfolio that's you know 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds and vice versa, let's get into the weeds a little bit more on that. And what are some of the study results that you've encountered kind of expanding on that conversation? It's interesting because particularly when you talk about finance, there's lots of different things you can do to present returns to people. Um, you know, I, I often use the example of I can show you returns from the last month, the last year, or the last 10 years. And naturally what happens in the last month or the last week, things are much more volatile than I've looked at the last 10 years. And so you even the risk attitude matters, presentation is going to is going to change whether people pick risky or riskless or less risky options. Uh, an experiment I do every time I teach MBA students is I ask them the following question. Imagine you had were given $10,000 at age 25. And let's say you had a fantastic return of 10% a year adjusted for inflation um, and you're going to retire at 65, how much would that $10,000 be worth? Now, we're not wired to do the appropriate exponential calculation. At least I don't walk around with a, with a calculator in my head that lets me do that, or I don't have Excel in my pocket. I guess maybe if I go for my phone. What people tend to do is underestimate how much they would get. The actual answer is about $750,000 at 65. And in fact, they estimate this. These are Columbia MBA students. They are very savvy. If you don't give them the calculator, they're going to estimate about $200,000. This means savings will look much less attractive than it should be, particularly for very long-term savings. Now, in the reverse, which I think is really important, is what does that say about borrowing? And borrowing, the cost of borrowing will look smaller than it really will be, particularly for long-term loans. For most people, unless you do the math, the difference between a 15 and 30-year mortgage probably looks small in terms of payments, but in terms of the total payment over the life of the loan, that's huge. So another way a choice architect or designer can help people is display things, not just in terms of rate of return or ROI. They can also talk about the absolute dollar amount. People tend to understand dollars much more. So you might talk about a fund having a 1% load, but if you, and they say, okay, that doesn't have much impact. If you say, by the way, in 30 years, here's what a 1% load will mean in term, instead of a 0.5% load, then they can understand what, what it means. So you choose how to present the costs and the benefits of various investments, and that can have a huge effect. 
Well, and it's funny that you talk about dollars because when we present performance to our clients, we do it in percentage on dollars and they really do focus on the dollar amount because that's what we all understand. It's money in our pocket. Before we take a break, spend a, a moment talking about the concept of soft barriers to decision-making and what that really means. So people tend to be lazy, particularly at the beginning of a decision. As they look at a decision, they're actually deciding there's another decision making, which is how hard to work. And if initially, it's a little bit like a GPS. Initially, as GPS, I type in, into my phone how I want to go. Once I've made that decision, I'm going to stick with it. And with lots of decisions, we're the same way. Once we start deciding how to decide, we don't change. So a classic case of a soft barrier is essentially putting something on the second page of a form or below the fold in a newspaper or obviously in a website having to scroll down. So a simple thing like basically just being below the scroll, the bottom of the screen for most people will prevent people from looking at options. So that can be very powerful. If you want stocks to be really uh, chosen, put it above the fold, above the screen, and make sure they see them as soon as they start having to scroll to see other options, they're much more likely to be chosen. That's true of stocks. It's true of hotel rooms. It's just a very powerful and subtle effect. Well, you'll find this interesting because when my colleagues send me emails in the subject line, they'll say, Gene, read this. Because if it goes on and on and on and on and on, and I'm like, you got to talk to me in bullet points because you know, I've, 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 you're, I'm not reading anymore. I'm just kind of gleaming um, what they're saying. So that is interesting that you share that. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, I do want to talk about what we can all do as listeners to help in that decision-making and what we can do for each of us individually. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jean Range, Senior Wealth Advisor at Ellen Becker Investment Group. And we've had a great conversation with Eric Johnson. And you might want to check out his book. It's on Amazon and other retailers. If you'd like to check out his website, go to www.elementsofchoice.com. I thought I'd close the conversation today talking about What's the most important concept our listeners can know about making a decision or a choice? What should they be thinking about? Can they actually influence or change how they make decisions? And how do we overcome some of our common defaults? Now, I, throw, I threw three good conversations or questions at you that we could um, spend all afternoon talking about, but share with us a little bit on those questions. So the reason I wrote the book is that choice architecture is incredibly powerful, um, but we don't realize the impact it has. We basically don't know that defaults make a difference. In fact, when you do studies where you say you present people with the default and you see the default is working, they're choosing A or B, you ask them, did the default influence your choice? They tend to say no. They say it might affect other people, but not me. So the one thing I think people should try and carry away from this is that we are influenced by the choice architecture. The book is aimed at designers because we all are designers. You talked about designing choices for your child's 
outfits. My wife and I are obviously also designers. We say, what, where do you want to go to eat tonight? Or what do you want to watch on TV? We're all choice architects. So learning that we have a almost superpower to influence people by presenting things to them in certain ways is really important. But there's a second thing, of course, which is we're also not only designers, we're also choosers, people who make choices. And if we're naive about these tools, people can have influence over us. That could be something we get upset by. So someone puts a menu in front of you and they're actually going to influence you to choose the first option. You know, you might think about that and you might say, gee, why is this menu constructed the way it is? Is it being presented in my best interest or in all likelihood in the best interest of the restaurant now, of course, or the financial analyst, of course, hopefully those interests are aligned, but this is the real world and they're not always aligned. That is what is best for me may not always be the best for the person presenting the choice. So I think it's that is a lesson to realize that choice architecture has a huge influence. We can use it for good. And as designers, we probably should, but it also can be used for bad. There's a phrase, um, some people call some of this nudging. There's another phrase called sludge, you know, basically nudging for the not so good, making it difficult for people to do things. Uh, one quick last story. Whenever you subscribe to a newspaper, they will be ha very happy to let you do that online. And you can do it in 30 seconds. But when you try and cancel that subscription, oh, no, there's no online option. You actually have to call. You're on hold. And when it is, they'll ask you a bunch of questions. That kind of, that's an example of, of choice architecture not being good. And I hope people after reading the book actually realize that they are both designers designing choices for other people. And of course, they're also choosers and choice architecture affects both sides. So in the couple minutes we have left, do you ever work with individuals to help them become better decision makers, quicker decision makers? And I know your book goes through all these concepts that explain how we make decisions and all. Do you ever work with clients or individuals to say, hey, I'm going to help you make good decisions and this is how you should look at it? Well, I have one client I care a lot about, and that's me and my family, of course. Um, but I mean, a lot of this is basically how do we present choices to ourselves? So how do I think about things like retirement? How do I think about things like that? And, you know, obviously, it's very much the kinds of things in the book. What are the plausible paths? What should I be looking at? And what are my preferences? And assembling preferences is very complicated, but you have to project to what you think you're going to experience and not just what you feel as a chooser right now. So it may hurt a little bit to save more. But then if you start thinking instead about what that's going to be like when you are reaching retirement age, it's going to be a much better decision. So I think the, the key is to really use the ideas of plausible paths and assembled preferences to help people make better choices. And you know, at the end of the day, you have to realize you made a decision based on the information you knew at the time, right? Because we can all go back and look and say, oh, I should have done that, or it would have been better had I chose that route. You just have to feel comfortable in what you've decided um, based on the information presented at the time. Let me give you one very simple example of how you can help somebody make better choices, particularly a naive person, someone who's not one of your more sophisticated clients. 
one of the things that was interesting is along with the change in, in defaults was the ability to actually give people target date funds. Now, we know what you should do. We should start out mostly in stocks. As you get older, you should be moving to bonds and, and less risky investments. That doesn't happen for most people. They just sit, let the money sit without the help of someone like Eugene. What those funds do is automatically do the right thing for people, changing from, let's say, 80% stocks to something that's much less as they age. That's a great choice architecture, and it's exactly the kind of thing that would be very useful for people who aren't sophisticated to use, and a choice architect can help them immensely by doing that. Funny you say that because I had a 100-year-old client who was 100% in stocks because he knew he wasn't going to spend his money and he'd get a step-up in cost basis at his death. So, you know, we talk about those blanket analysis on allocation and what's good for you. That was a unique situation, but it was fun uh, because he was a stock picker and he loved to ride the market. And again, he had sufficient investments to, to handle that risk. I do want to thank you for taking the time with us today. Again, a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed every chapter. It's uh, called The Elements of Choice, and you can go to the website, elementsofchoice.com. With that, I want to thank you for spending some time with us. Money Sense airs on Saturday from 2 to 3 and on Sundays from 12 to 1. If you like today's show and you want to learn more, please visit us at www.ellenbecker.com or give us a call at 262-691-3200. As always, I hope that I've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Be well.